Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good? Okay. Great. Great to see everyone here this morning. Welcome to everyone. Special welcome if you're a guest. I'm a guest, too. So uh, I want to thank you all for making me feel so welcome. Thank you to Rachel uh, for her hospitality and everyone else who has uh, made my wife and my mom and dad have come along on the road trip this morning as well. And thank you for making us all feel welcome. As Pastor David said, I'm a NAB pastor. Um, I'm a second career guy, kind of late to the party, you might say. Um, I received my Master's of Divinity uh, at Taylor Seminary only four years ago. So uh, we were led after my first career, which I was in for 20 years, um, to go into the ministry and uh, go back to school for four years. So that is, that is part of our story and, and sort of how we, how we survived that. Uh, we've been very blessed to have ministry opportunities. Uh, at the moment, we're in between um, uh, ministry opportunities and thus available to uh, come and speak at your church. I have been here once before. Um, there was a time in our life about seven years ago or so where we were often passing right by Proshu. Uh, and I would always marvel at the giant golf tee on the, on the highway. And uh, our daughter attended Rosebud Theater School for four years. She was also involved in the, uh, the Passion Play at Drumheller. So there was, at that time of our life, there was lots of reasons to be passing by Troshu. And one of those times, and my wife and I were, were comparing notes, it, it might have been just me myself, but uh, I stopped by and attended the Sunday service here and have fond memories of that. So I was only too delighted to uh, to accept the offer today and come and speak to and with you. I must admit that the subject matter that I'll be speaking on today is not something I anticipated, nor is it something I have preached on before. Though after thought and prayer and reflection, I felt strongly led to, to do it. Our nation right now is trying to come to grips with the reality of the discoveries of unmarked graves at the sites of former residential schools. And we've been reminded of racial abuse and how sinful actions bring damage and devastation to those made in the image of God people God loves and sent his son Jesus to redeem. The most recent data I am aware of is that over 1,100 unmarked graves have been located and many more sites are to be investigated. And so today I propose to humbly ask three questions. First, what were the residential schools exactly? Why did they exist? Second, what harm have they done to First Nations people, and what harm do they continue to cause? And third, 
in the area of application, what, if anything, can well-meaning Jesus followers do to help today? Let us pray. Lord, I am thankful that we can pray to you for help. I know that we live in a fallen world, and you know we live in a fallen world, Lord. There is evil here. There is pride, hypocrisy, lust, cruelty, racism, and unforgiveness. Lord, I pray for your wisdom and strength to speak today. I pray for humility and love and courage as we look into the truth concerning this very difficult issue. Knowing all the time, Lord, that Jesus said, the truth will set you free. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name. Before we look at those three questions, I would like to start today by considering the love of God to put all this into perspective. And I would like to talk about three things. God's works, God's love, and God's truth. Let's start with God's works. As followers of Jesus, when we talk about God's works, we often think of Psalm 19, where David pours out his praise to God over God's amazing works. Verse 1 says, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies declare his craftsmanship. God's amazing and beautiful creation points to him as the creator. The Grand Canyon, the Northern Lights, the Milky Way, all of it is God's work. But the Bible says that there is a work of God that is even more amazing and remarkable than those things. It is you and me and every human being. How so? In Psalm 139, the same David praises God for his works again. He says in verse 14, your works are beautiful. But this time he's not talking about the constellations or the the stars or the sun or the moon or the skies. David writing on behalf of all humanity says, God, you created my inmost being. You knit me together. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. All human beings are God's workmanship, made so wonderfully complex and marvelous. But you know, St. Augustine makes an interesting point. He says we don't appreciate that about ourselves. He says, men go abroad to wonder 
at the height of mountains and to wonder at the circular motion of the stars and to wonder at the the height of the waves of the ocean and the compass of the seasons. But they pass right by themselves without wondering. Yes, the mountains and the oceans and the planets and the stars are God's handiwork. But they are not his magnum opus, his great work. You and me and all human beings are that. Why? Because human beings are made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27 says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Every human being is a singular creation of God and loved by God. Not even the angels are created in the image of God. And because we are, every human being must be treated with dignity and respect. For one human being to treat another as less than the image of God is not okay. Because that is not okay with God. He is grieved by that. For some human beings to treat other human beings with racism and abuse God is grieved by that. Every human being is precious to God, no matter the color of their skin, their culture, their native language, or what country they're from. You know, Jesus is often portrayed as a Caucasian man. Sometimes it seems even like a North American Caucasian man. Jesus was not Caucasian. He was from the Middle East. And he was Jewish. And he is also Lord of all. And his children are of boundless variety, amazing diversity. Listen to the description of those who will be in heaven. The Apostle John says in Revelation 7, 9, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and language and people standing in front of the throne of God. God's greatest work, his magnum opus, is human beings because they're made in his image. And they make up a great kaleidoscope of humanity. His children include those of First Nations Canadian descent. They include include those of Middle East descent, of African descent, of Asian descent, to name just a few. Everyone's nation and language and culture is important to God. We will be worshiping him that way. These things make up who you are, your identity. And God loves you for those things. He wants you to embrace those things about you and follow Jesus as you are. All people are God's works, 
created in his image. And here's what this means. Every single person you ever meet, regardless of their race, religion, socioeconomic class, or their personality, they should always feel welcomed and cherished by you. You must treat them as equals and as infinitely precious beings because they are infinitely precious beings to God. They carry his image. So that's the first thing about God's love. We are his magnum opus, his special creation made in his image. The second thing about God's love is that it is unconditional in nature. God's love is unconditional. There's no strings attached. He loves you just because. And it's crucial that we understand that. What do I mean? There's a place in uh, the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, where God, where, where we see God's unconditional love. We see the nature of his love for, for the people of Israel. This is what he says to the people of Israel. He says, The Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than any other nation, for you were the smallest of nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you. In other words, God essentially said, Israel, my love for you has no strings attached and there's no condition. I didn't love you because you were the most hardworking people. I didn't love you because you were the strongest of people or the most lovable of people. I didn't love you for any of those reasons. I love you because I love you. Let's say your son or daughter comes to you and uh, they say, Mom, Dad, why do you love me? And you say, I love you because you're a great hockey player. Or, I love you because you get great marks in school. Or, I love you because you're such a wonderful piano player. Now, do you think that will give them a sense of peace in the long run? Or will your son or daughter eventually say or think to themselves, do I always have to be a great hockey player in order to be loved? Do I always have to play the piano well or get great marks in school? Do I always have to dance on the head of a pin in order to be loved? I mean, what happens when I get bad marks in school? What happens then? Am I, am I no longer worthy of being loved? In the deepest parts of our heart, all of us need to hear that we are loved with a love that is beyond having a motive for it. I say to my kids, and I've said many times, I'm glad you're good at things. 
whether it's marks in school or playing the guitar or any of these other things. But that stuff's just gravy. If you didn't get good marks in school, I would still love you. If you weren't good at playing soccer or if you quit the piano because you hated it, I would still love you. We all need to know a love that says, I love you not because you're usable to me or that somehow I'll benefit from that. I love you, my kids, because I love you. That is the very nature of the love of God the Father. So that's the second thing. God loves you with no strings attached. It's unconditional. Let's talk now about God's truth. God's truth tells us that regardless of our ethnicity or language or the color of our skin, we all have the same problem. And that problem is sin. We have all turned our back on God. We have all rebelled against him and have not loved our neighbors as we should. Every human being is in the same position. We all needed to be saved by God. And Romans 5.6 tells us of God's rescue plan. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, God died for the ungodly, which is all of us. People of all races, backgrounds, come to the cross together, equally broken. That is God's truth. In all the news today, and all the things out there in the media, God's truth is a fixed reference point in a chaotic world, like the North Star. And when we build our foundations on God's truth revealed in his word, we can face questions about our own prejudices or our own biases and if we've been hurt, our own unforgiveness and bitterness. We can face those questions by going to God's word, which tells us to ask God to search our hearts for offensive things. With great humility, Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Ask God to search your heart and show you where maybe you look at a people and judge them and, 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 or from the other side, if you've been hurt, if you're bitter and forgiveness, Lord, help me forgive. Take away this bitterness. And then, from his word, we know we are to confess these prejudices, confess these, these unforgiveness to him. 
Okay. With that foundation laid, let us move to answer these questions with great humility. First question. What were these residential schools for? Why did they exist? The purpose of residential schools is not difficult to identify because the words of our political leaders who created them are recorded. We can read them. We know what they said. And they were absolutely clear about it. Residential schools were not created to teach First Nations children reading, writing, and arithmetic. Any school in the country could have done that. No, these schools were formed for the purpose of separating Aboriginal children from their parents in order to weaken and destroy their family structure, remove their culture and language, and take away their identity. Everything these kids held dear was taken away from them, and they were indoctrinated into a new culture. For example, all of their clothing, native clothing, was taken away and replaced. Hair was cut short. Speaking their native language was forbidden and often punished with beatings. The schools were described as emotionless. Discipline was harsh. But it's more than that. Supervision was lax. The schools were underfunded. And there was the opportunity for predators in these situations. Children were abused physically and sexually. And they died. They died in these schools in numbers that would have been unfathomable in any other school system in the country and probably the world. As one pastor I heard recently said, in my elementary school when I grew up, there wasn't a cemetery there. These schools were in existence for over a 100 years. So many successive generations of children from the same communities and families were forced to endure them. Countless others have had to live with the scars and memories of abuse. Families were torn apart. Sometimes children never came home. All told, it's estimated that 150,000 First Nations, Métis, and Inuit students passed through the system. And this experience was hidden for most of Canada's history. I certainly knew absolutely nothing about it growing up, until survivors of the system were able to finally come forward with great courage and bring these experiences to light. Question number two. What harm have residential schools caused and continue to cause to First Nations people? The closing down of residential schools unfortunately did not bring their story to an end. 
There's no doubt that there is an ominous legacy of these schools that continues to this day. The schools which were intended to sever the link between Aboriginal children and their parents only did that job too well. Families were permanently broken. Children exposed to emotionless and regimented discipline in schools not only lost their connection to their parents, but also found it difficult to become loving parents themselves because they grew up experiencing neither respect nor affection. A school system that mocked and suppressed their families' cultures and tradition destroyed their sense of self-worth. Overwhelmed by this legacy, many yielded to despair and depression. Countless lives have been destroyed by alcohol and drugs and other addictions. Addictions is a major problem. Education, income, and health disparities between Aboriginal people and other Canadians result in Aboriginal people having shorter, poorer, and more troubled lives. Addiction, incarceration, and homelessness among First Nations people are disproportionate as compared to other populations. Perhaps the most harmful impact of the residential schools is the loss of self-worth and self-respect of Aboriginal people. Now I want to be clear. These problems cannot all be blamed on residential schools in their entirety, but there is clearly a causal link. As uh, many of you probably know, last weekend was the North American Baptist Conference Triennial. And as part of that was done this time, of course, uh, differently, uh, virtually and through Zoom and videos and over the Internet. And as part of that triennial, I was very fortunate and blessed to listen to a, a speaker named Nathan Goulian. Nathan is in a unique position to put a personal face on the legacy of residential schools in his life. Nathan Goulian is a pastor. He is a First Nations pastor who lives and works in Alberta for a predominantly Caucasian church. His story is that he was saved at a time in his life when he was homeless. At rock bottom, God led him to an Alliance church and he gave his life to Christ, which started, he says, a slow process of healing from his addictions, from his anger. Eventually, he attended seminary and received a Master of Divinity degree and he became a pastor. He explains his family history this way. Quote, My grandmother attended residential schools. There were 12 in my grandmother's family. They all went to residential schools and they all came out and all 12 became addicts. 
There was not one left out that did not become an addict. So the hurt and bitterness in my grandma from the residential schools passed on to my mother, and she became an addict. And the same anger and bitterness passed to me, and I became a user and an addict. After I accept, accepted Jesus Christ, it started this process of healing in me. I didn't know why I was hurting, why I was so angry, why I was so sad, why I felt alone. I didn't know how to process all that. And he says, it's ingrained in us as First Nations. We're not emotional. So other than anger, I didn't know how to process all these feelings and emotions that were coming. He says, today I still pray for God to help me cry. My wife prays for that day where there is this release of this emotional reserve inside me. In how we were raised, emotion, hugging, encouragement, terms of endearment, we just did not get any of that. There was a time when I just could not hug people, members of my family. That's the relationship I wanted with my mom that I never got. I was neglected, left alone a lot. And that came into my adulthood, and I couldn't deal with it. The same is true for many First Nations people. And the residential schools were run by churches. They were run by people who came in the name of God, in the name of Jesus. And now we're finding these unmarked graves. He says children were abused there. They died there. They're separated from their families there. So another piece of this legacy of residential schools is, Nathan says, a growing chasm, a separation between First Nations people and the church, a growing bitterness as more and more graves are found. And he clarified, First Nations people don't distinguish between the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church, the Presbyterian Church, Alliance Church. To them, it's all the same. Why is this a problem? As we discussed, the essential problem of every human being is that we all face sin. We must be saved by Jesus. We can only truly be healed of our addictions and sin and negative emotions and heartache through the power of the risen Jesus Christ. As Nathan Gullian's story attests. But that is a hard sell to First Nations people given the history of churches in residential schools. So Nathan Goulian says, here I am, a First Nations pastor, a representative of the church. How is God using me? 
God is using him primarily to educate and speak to Caucasian churches, to educate them. But he says he's also getting a chance to reach out more and more to First Nations people. So very briefly, that is a look at the harm caused and continuing to affect First Nations people by residential schools. And that brings us to our third question in the area of application. What, if anything, can well-meaning Jesus followers do to help today? Let's unpack this question a little bit. It's like this. How does a person who is truly concerned and wants to reach out to First Nations people as these discoveries of unmarked graves continue to happen, how does that person engage with First Nations in a constructive and helpful way so as to treat them with dignity and respect as God's image bearers? How do you come alongside somebody so that it can be received with love and care? Because that's hard to navigate. And in this discussion he had with his moderator last week, two points came out that that I would like to share with you. First, Nathan says, I think of Job and his friends, at least in the beginning, when the friends first got there. His friends came and sat with him, and they didn't say anything. They just cried with him. I'd just like to read that passage. It's Job 2, 11 to 13. Job 2, 11 to 13. When three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Their names were Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. That is lament. They lamented with Job. They cried with Job. Nathan Gullian says, I think there's a time to sow seeds and there's a time to be silent and lament. Cry with us. Cry with us. Do as the Apostle says in Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Give time to heal. There are over 1,100 graves now, and it's not going to stop. This is a time to lament and listen. And he gave, respectfully, a very interesting example, observation. He said, often well-meaning people who love the Lord Jesus, well-meaning people, non-First Nations people, 
feel the need to relate their own struggles to First Nations struggles as if they understand them. Would say something like, yes, I, I understand. I, I understand suffering. Back in the day, we didn't have running water. My kid had tuberculosis. There was polio around. Yes, Nathan says, that that is terrible. But that's not what we're talking about. Respectfully, this is different. We're talking about a nation and a people who has been stripped of their identity. Families purposefully separated, effectively destroyed, culture and language prohibited. Respectfully, let's do what Job's friends did at the beginning. Listen and mourn with us. And the second point as to how to truly concerned Jesus followers can reach out to First Nations people in a constructive and helpful way as these discoveries of graves are happening points us to Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 40. And I'd just like to read that. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 40. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? and feed you, or thirsty, and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So, there is this principle that if you help the least of these brothers and sisters of Jesus, you are helping Jesus. And so it's not just that they have a need of you and you are being Jesus' hands and feet to them. It's also that as you help them, they are Jesus to you. You are helping Jesus. What an amazing way to think of encountering those who need help. That is, we approach them not just as people who have a need you can fill, but also 
they have something to offer you for you to receive. So we must see that that person not just as the recipient of a handout, but as an equal who has much to offer others from their background and from their experience. The respectful dialogue can take place. Ministry goes both ways. So when you get a chance as a follower of Jesus to talk with First Nations people, whether they need your help in that moment or not, bring dignity to that conversation as if you were talking to Jesus himself. If help is required, help them then with love and respect. Always looking for signs of Jesus among the poor and sick and hungry because Jesus said, when you do that to the least of my brothers and sisters, you're doing that to me. Understand that even if you're there to give, you're there not just to give, but also to receive from that relationship. Because the other person, like Jesus, has much to offer you. I'd like to finish with a story about a, a Jesus follower, a, a sculptor, a Canadian sculptor named Timothy Schmalz. Since 2013, he's been placing a particular sculpture in front of churches in many cities. The sculpture is of a homeless man sleeping on a bench. The life-size bronze statue appears to be anonymous because the subject's face and hands are covered with a blanket. But the gaping wounds on his feet reveal that that person is Jesus. Schmalz named the statue Matthew 25 in reference to the quote we just discussed. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Reaction to the statue has been mixed. When it was installed at a church in an upscale Davidson, North Carolina church, one woman called the police. Another wrote a letter of complaint to the editor of a local newspaper. Many felt that the statue was an insult to the Son of God. And so, my brothers and sisters, this is the kind of thinking we as Jesus followers, I put to you, have to overcome. When we enter into a relationship with a First Nations brother or sister or any other homeless person or person in need, come with authenticity and gentleness, be yourself, no pretense, no pretending, 
Nathan says on behalf of First Nations people, don't treat me like an unreached people group. I'm a person. He says, set mission mode aside. Don't have an agenda. Just be willing to listen, talk, be respectful. So we can talk with our First Nations brothers and sisters respectfully, with dignity. Why? Because they are made in the image of God like we are. And they deserve to be approached with love as if we were approaching Jesus himself. All the while being willing to learn from them. Let us pray. Lord God, I thank you for this beautiful church. I thank you for this opportunity to come and speak these words. I pray by your Holy Spirit you take this message and open eyes and open hearts as only you can do. I pray for a blessing over Troshu Baptist Church. May these people be blessed and a blessing over the First Nations people of Canada. Help us move forward together. In Jesus' name, amen.